Ramble. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to Symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, and today we're talking about the FBI agent. He had hesitantly walked through the warehouse door. I mean, everything looked worse than he thought. He was expecting some grime, some dirt, some coldness, but there were no windows in this big warehouse room. It was essentially a giant concrete block. There was some natural light coming from the skylights, but really nothing. The walls, though. This is the part that would have made anybody except for this seasoned FBI agent shit their pants. This is the part where you would have gagged, ran out the door, screaming for Jesus and your mom. It would have been bad. On the walls, there were rows and rows, shelves upon shelves of decapitated heads. Some of them with rotting flesh still stuck to them. Some of them with their eyeballs still in. Some of them were completely skeletonized, just displayed for the whole world to see. Whoever walked in, it it wasn't hidden in a vault or a safe. It's just right there, lined up on these shelves. Real? Yes. The FBI agent walked cautiously into the kitchen of the warehouse, which was in the back, and he heard the noise, and that's where he saw it. The man, barefoot, with a giant apron on, cooking a skull in a giant pot. (laughs) But here's the catch. At least you're like, well, the FBI agent caught him. We got the bad guys. He's going to get arrested now, right? Right? Well, the agent doesn't arrest him. Are they in on it together? The two of them actually know each other. They see each other quite often in what they call, and I quote, the murder room. 
As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But if you do anything today, please go pick up a copy of The Murder Room by Michael Capuzzo. Listen, the amount of work that went into this book... I can't even I can't even begin to describe the author extensively researched this case or should I say multiple cases. He read intense books on this society that we're going to be talking about. Yeah, there's something called the Vidoc Society. He read the journals. He read other books that have been written where the society had, you know, a lot of. A lot of hands involved. He went through case files, transcript, interviewed hundreds of people, including law enforcement, victims, families. I mean, it's so well written. I had to keep checking to make sure it was nonfiction. It reads like a thriller. And I'm like, okay, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. Sure enough. It's true. Literally everything in this is true. It was on a case and a subject matter that I really was not familiar with, and it just guided me through it. It was such an amazing experience of a book, so I highly recommend it. It's it's so fascinating, and it's definitely very well-researched. I'm actually going to be picking up more of his books after reading this one because, wow, what talent this author has. So with that being said, have you heard of the VDoc Society? It's a fascinating name, right? I mean, it wasn't born out of thin how, air. How do you spell that? It's V-I-D. Vid. <laughs> Vid. O-C-Q. I know that one threw you for a loop. Vidoc. Vidoc, yeah. Vidoc, Vidoc. I think I'm saying it wrong, but it's actually named after a man named uh, Eugene Vidoc. So this guy is a role model for a lot of people. He was known as the father of modern criminology. But did you know that he was also a thief? So it's really an example of that phrase. In order to catch a thief, you must be a thief. <laughs> so Eugene Vidoc, um, he was the father of criminology. He spent a good part of his life committing crimes all over France. It's said that he was the world's first private eye, private investigator detective in history. So a little bit about Eugene. We're not really talking about him, but he's kind of pertinent to the story. Eugene was born in... <laughs> We're throwing it real back. 1775. He's born into this huge family. He was the third of seven children. And since his parents were working and they were so busy taking care of all their kids, he had a lot of free time, which he used to proudly terrorize the other kids in the neighborhood. That was his jam. That was his best extracurricular activity. When Eugene turns into a teenager, he starts heading down the dark path of crimes. He starts by robbing his own family. Can you imagine? Like you just start taking money from your own parents. So his parents have this local bakery that does pretty well. And he would just take money from the safe for the cash register. And he would use it to get drunk after work. So at these bars with his stolen money from his parents, he starts meeting other like-minded individuals. They were not above stealing from their own parents. So that's great. They become best friends. And when his dad finds out, he tries to keep the cash box locked. But Eugene would then start taking random items from the bakery and selling them. His parents were so stressed they called the police. Eugene was arrested for the first time. And it had the opposite effect of what should be done. They thought that Eugene was going to come out, get his life together, get a girlfriend, get a job, like really change it up. But in reality, he's like, all right, now I got to skip town. But first, I need to rob my parents one last time of every dime that they have. So he robbed his parents. Then he went to different areas of France, literally a new city, a new crime, a new warrant out for his arrest. He would literally be evading prison every single city that he went to, just committing a life of crime. He would sleep with women. He was a womanizer. He loved committing forgeries and fraud and evading the law. His life was like a movie. At one point, he went into this house filled with women who loved him. They just wanted to talk to him. And he's like, you know what? I am charismatic. I am special. Of course, women flock to me. But the next day he woke up naked near the ship docks with not a penny to his name. 
so she got he got like he got by played w- by the woman yeah but he thought he thought it was because you know his physique because of how handsome he was <laughs> So, I mean, his life is really, really wild. So after he's constantly on the run, just escaping from prisons, there's this vicious cycle and he's thinking to himself, God, this is not good for my mental health. I mean, considering the fact that he was at this point a notorious killer, a con man, a highwayman, a prison escape artist, a womanizer and a spy, he's like, I got to put my foot down, you know, my mental health is suffering a little bit. So he asked the prison guards and the police in exchange for eventually getting a clean record and my freedom. Could you use my experience or something? You know, I'm, I committed a lot of frauds. I know the ins and outs. People trust me. Other criminals trust me to open up to me. I mean, come on, I can help you catch these bad guys. So they took him up on his offer. He was able to catch groups of organized thieves. They just trusted him. They like get away with people. The police were starting to trust him too. They actually wanted him on the outside. So they're like, if you're this good in prison with people we've already convicted, what can you do outside? Not only did they take him out of prison, they let him have his own little team of detectives, like his own little squad. They were called the security brigade. And it was just a group of reformed criminals that were passionate about solving crimes. So yeah, this is a real thing that happened. The group was a success. It was officially recognized as a subgroup in the police department. And Eugene was the first chief. The team went on to arrest like over 800 people. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I think the way that he did it, though, and the reason that he's called the guy, like the father of criminology, I'm like the guy of criminology, is because his techniques were really profound at that time. He just kept all these accurate, super detailed records of every single criminal that he ever ran into. People weren't doing that back then. He made flashcards for motives. So like, imagine you're studying for a criminology degree. Like this is what you would do. He Mm -hmm. would even make flashcards for very notorious wanted criminals, like their appearances. So cops around the city would just take them around and flip through them while they're studying. And if you happen to see that guy, you're like, oh, shoot. Sounds like a better system than the cops today. Yeah, I know. They (laughs) just need flashcards. And then they have like a giant binder that they pull out and they're like, hold on. You look familiar. They start scrolling through each one. <laughs> They're like, can you can you smile for me? Can you look up at the... <laughs> can you imagine? So he starts making these flashcards, distributing them. He even had flashcards for, you know, people's styles, like criminal styles, what they like to wear. Mm. He was also very much into psychology, getting people to trust him, playing mind games to get people to confess. He also was one of the first people to start the trend of footprint casting. What, what's that? When there's footprints left at the crime scene in mud, he would mm-hmm. get plaster so he could cast the footprints left at the burglary and he would go around just Cinderella-ing the bitch. You know, like, hey, put your foot in here. Oh, it's match. You're guilty. Come with me, you little, you little rascal. Another instance, this was, he had to fight tooth and nail for this one. He begged the doctor. Hey, you know that uh, murder victim we brought in? You know how she was shot in the head? Can you um give me the bullet? what kind of blasphemy like you want me to go into this victim's skull and get you the bullet that's no nobody would consent to this people would think that you're looney tunes you're disgusting you're a sadist what's wrong with you you need therapy if people found out we could both lose our jobs no but i need that bullet i need to match it to the proper gun 
He was one of the very first people to do that. A very primitive version of ballistic forensics, but I mean, you know, very influential in the crime fighting world, right? He later becomes a private detective. Um, I think he died at like 80 something years old. But of course, this is all very primitive. This is no longer the 1700s and he's no longer around to help us solve all the cold cases that other seasoned detectives, they just can't get justice for. But, but what if, what if, I mean, wouldn't you want this? Wouldn't this be your dream if maybe you or a loved one went missing or something happened to you? Wouldn't you want a room full of forensic experts, investigators, some of the top in the field across the globe, patiently waiting, intently and passionately working on your case? Yeah. Wouldn't you want that? And if they promised you that more often than not, your case would be solved by them, a team, a society of some of the best investigators? Of course. You'd want that. Well, welcome to the Vidoc Society. It's true. It sounds like an organization straight out of a mystery novel. And without knowing much about them, I would straight up think that it's fake. It sounds like something that you would have in a book and not real life. But once you realize that it's real and it's still active today, you might think and imagine just a group of unbeatable Sherlock Holmes detectives sitting in a room solving crime. They've got this like superior logic that us mere mortals will never be able to harness, but it's actually quite simpler than that and honestly quite bougier. So what is the VDOC Society and how do they even form? The Vidoc Society was founded in 1990 in Philadelphia when three forensic experts, they got together for lunch. It sounds like a setup to a joke, and I swear it's not. So they start talking about their experience with cold cases. They're like, oh, this one sucks. Have you been able to solve that? Nobody can solve shit these days. It's like a movie. Now I'm going to introduce you to the quirky crime-fighting trio starts with William L. Fleischer. With his slicked back hair, his snowy beard, he kind of looks like Santa. I hope he's not offended by that. And his pinstripe suits. He is a world-class polygraph examiner and interrogator. He was one of the top FBI agents up and down the East Coast. He had experience working for the Philadelphia Police Department. And one thing to note, you better not lie to William because he will catch you on it with or without a polygraph hooked up to you. Then there's Richard Walter. He's got this uh, very sharp face, cold stare. I mean, it's no wonder that he spent 20 years treating some of the most violent psychopaths in the state of Michigan. He is a psychologist. Now, he's actually from a small group of criminologists that invented modern criminal profiling. Some people call him a serial killer hunter. Nobody calls him that, actually. I do. They call him the real-life Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and he hates what? it. I know. He hates it. They call him the living Sherlock Holmes. And this is what he says he does when someone calls that to him to his face. He says, uh, it's a nickname that horrifies me. Whenever someone says that, I look away and wait for the moment to pass, as if someone had just farted. <laughs> Why? Why does he hate it? It's just a lot of pressure. Oh, okay. So we got the serial killer. I thought he, he wanted to say... I'm much better than that. <laughs> He's like, Sherlock Holmes is baby, baby to me. So we've got William, the lie detector man. We've got Richard, the serial killer hunter. And last but not least, we have Frank Bender with his handsome, shiny, bald head. Oh yeah, so bald, so shiny. Filled to the brim with ideas. He's got this white mustache that looks like the epitome of class, if I'm being honest with you. He was, at the time, the most notorious forensic sculptors in potentially all of history. 
So you're like, what does that even mean, right? Well, forensic sculptors create 3D images of a person to either help ID the victim or track down a criminal on the run. So think of like a composite sketch that you would see in most cases, but 3D, which is going to be a lot more accurate and a lot more alive because we always say, hey, why does that composite sketch look like nobody and everybody at the same time? Like it looks like my neighbor, but it also doesn't look like my neighbor. It's confusing. So it's not just charts and arts and craft, though. You have to have like extensive skill and knowledge in anatomy. So we have the trio of Ted Bundy catchers, the serial killer slayers, William, the polygraph genius, Richard, the serial killing hunting criminologist, and Frank, the forensic sculptor. How is this not a movie? They even had a comedic friendship. So one time Frank, the the he, he considered himself a sex addict, he ran into Richard's office. Now, Richard is very sexually conservative, by the way. He is exactly your stereotypical serial killer hunter. Very clean cut, stone cold face, poker face, just likes everything type A. Like that's the type of person he is. So Frank runs in and he's like, Richard, Richard, Rich, Rich, let me show you something. And it was an eight foot giant painting of one of Frank's many girlfriends at the time, full frontal naked view, and even like a real brass ring hanging on the left nipple. God, Richard, she just has the cutest butt, doesn't she? Jesus Christ, Frank, you're almost 60 years old. You're behaving like a 15-year-old. You're using sex as an antidote to depression. This is not healthy, especially at our age. Is this like the equivalent of showing your friend nudes? Like, yes. hey, check this out. Yes, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but like consensually because she agreed to have this giant painting done of herself, you know? Uh-huh. So this is this is what they were doing. So these are the three founders. And honestly, kind of love them. They just wanted a huge group together where like-minded people could get together and discuss, debate rather, crime, mysteries, cold cases that were bothering them, the reasons that they were losing sleep. So they came together and on a random Thursday lunch, they created the Vidoc Society after Eugene Vidoc. And now since Eugene lived to be 82 years old, they decided that they were only going to accept 82 members, one for each year of Eugene's life. Because, you know, what's a what's a quiet society without a bunch of random rules? Their logo would be the colors of France, because since Eugene himself was French, And only when a member passed away or retired do they allow admittance for another member. So they kept the number at a stable 82. Members were also from like all walks of life, including experienced investigators from federal, state, local law enforcement agencies, even private firms. They also accepted internationally renowned forensic experts in the fields of pathology, criminology. I don't know how to say this, but it's essentially something graphy, which is the study of fingerprints. Like why do they, it sounds like a reptile. It's like dactylography or something. Forensic dentistry, psychology, polygraphy, facial reconstructions, and even federal, state, and local prosecutors from the DA's office. The only- Honestly, sounds really, really cool. Exactly. But um, are they doing anything? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're doing a lot. The only caveat to all of this is that you have to be the best in your field. Even after you're chosen to be a member, you have to go through a training course to officially become a member. How about like a renowned international podcaster? (laughs) True crime podcaster. Are you trying to apply? Yes. (laughs) So here we go. What kind of people make it into this type of society? Well, remember Robert Hessler? Do you guys remember Robert Ressler from Mindhunter, the famous Netflix show, but it's actually a book. And he's actually an FBI agent who confronted the likes of Charles Manson, John Wayne Gacy. He is thought to have coined the term serial killer. Mm -hmm. He was a member. 
Really? Yeah. Another notable member is Dr. Hal Fillinger of Philly. He had proven the unicorn killer had murdered his girlfriend. We're actually talking about the unicorn killer. There's a a unicorn killer? Oh, yeah. I'm literally reading a book on the unicorn killer. So anyways, he drove a car with plates that said Homicide Hal. (laughs) At least it wasn't Homicide Doll Hal. Okay, sorry. (laughs) The, The director of the French FBI was also a member. So there are a lot of people. They all stood behind the Vidoc Society mission. It was simple. It was straightforward. They were bothered that so many as one out of three murders in the U.S. go unsolved. One out of three. Mm -hmm. Departments are underfunded. Investigators are overworked. The criminal justice system favored the rights of criminals over victims. That's how they all felt with years of experience in this field. They just wanted more justice. Hmm. And they would do the work pro bono. Really? They meet on the third Thursday of every single month, the Thursday club, because that's when the founders had that lunch, that fateful random Thursday. Everyone typically sits at their tables based on nationality, not as a rule, but rather as like a, you know, familiarity. And they call it the murder room. It's filled with 82 detectives, some investigators, some other guests, you know, police officers and grieving families are able to come and present their case to the society. And afterwards, every single person who presents their case is gifted a wooden magnifying glass, symbolizing the first scientific tool of detection. So if you have a case and you want to present it to the Vidoc Society, there's only a couple requirements. Number one, your case has to be a cold case, at least two years old. Number two, the victim had to not have been involved in any criminal activity. Number three, there must be a body, a crime scene, and at least some kind of physical evidence to go off of. Now, before we get back into the crimes, you know, that they help solve, let's talk about the founders because their story is wild. Like each one of them, I wish I could just talk on and on about for like two hours each. But first, there's William Fleischer, the polygraph king, the don't lie to him or end up in prison king. He was born to a successful dentist and a very successful grandpa. His grandpa was the largest potato and onion wholesaler in all of Philadelphia. They called him the Potato King. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's a king nowadays. Exactly. The short kings, the tall kings. The the potato kings. (laughs) The onion kings. You're the onion princess. (laughs) Everybody gets a title. It's so easy in this world. So he he was a huge policeman, the Petito King. He loved loved being around police officers, the Petito King. He just loved them. None of them could ever leave his warehouse without a free five pound bag of potatoes. Like that was his thing. I don't know why. He just loved them. He was like, thank you for serving our city. Here's a bag of potatoes. But anyways... William's dad was a dentist and also a huge community man. He was named Philadelphia's best-dressed man at one point. And everyone always told him, you look like a movie star. You really do, wow. But William, the one that went by Billy when he was younger, he just, um, all he wanted in life was to be like his dad. But he wasn't. You see, Billy's older brother looked just like his dad. Over six feet tall, but, but not Billy. He was a little bit shorter, a little bit more awkward, not as that movie star charisma vibe as his dad and his brother. But Billy loved his dad. He loved going to lunch with his dad and then to a lecture right after. Like he was just an intellectual from the get go. And Herbert, his dad, would entertain him for hours talking about himself mainly, about his friends, his celebrity patients as a dentist, lawyers, politicians that he knew. But it wasn't always nice. Sometimes during lunch, Herbert might whisper to his youngest son, William, you're behaving like a bum. You're acting like a little loser. Get it together. 
William's brothers and sister never got those types of remarks. I mean, they were perfect. William was the unwanted child. He was the mistake. His parents had two kids, a daughter and a son, and then she got pregnant with a third kid. And it was kind of this well-known fact that Herbert didn't even want any more kids. When people would ask him, hey, I heard your wife Esther's pregnant. Oh, third kid. So you have a daughter, you have a son. What do you want next? Are you excited for like another son? You want them two boys? You want two girls running around? Like, what do you want? And he would just respond so coldly, look them in the eye, not even a giggle he would say i would prefer a german shepherd but here we are you know and william's older siblings they were really something else okay they just they did everything that their dad did they loved going out socializing going to football games doing all those philadelphia things but all william wanted to do was sit at home and read detective novels sometimes his parents threatened him that if he didn't get his life together seymour levin would get to him what yeah okay this is it sounds like not a threat right you're like who's seymour it's not even like the grinch it's not even who who the hell is this kid seymour was the neighborhood i want to say bully but it, I mean, it's not even a bully it's worse than that it's a criminal he was 16 years old in the neighborhood when he had invited a fellow 12 year old boy to to his house let's watch a movie now, during this little play date, Seymour excitedly showed Ellis, the 12-year-old, all of his test tubes. He's like, oh, look at my chemistry set. It's the best chemistry set you've ever seen in your life. Ellis is like, well, actually, I have better test tubes at home. These aren't high quality. They're not like dual layered. They'll probably crash if you put something hot into it. So I'm just saying I have the better test tubes. Seymour didn't like that. He started beating up Ellis. Then he smashed the test tubes. Glass shards scattered everywhere. Seymour gets a kitchen knife, made Ellis undress, sodomized him, and then stabbed him more than 50 times through the heart, face, back, and everywhere else. Jeez. He then tied Ellis's hands with a laundry cord, dragged his entire body through the house, into the backyard, and dumped him into the garage. The police said that at that point, there was not a drop of blood left in Ellis's body. And Seymour was arrested. He was placed in juvenile detention. And because it was juvie, nobody really knew when he was going to get released. It seemed like at any moment. So his parents would always threaten him and say, Seymour's going to get ya. So William had a, had a bit of fear in his life. He's always kind of been a, a little scaredy cat. No offense, William. I love you so much. Please solve my case if I go missing. Anyway, one time he went to his grandpa's store and he saw this poster on the wall in his potato store. And from afar, it kind of looked like a portrait with three heads. It was kind of strange. He walked up to it. And he froze in fear. It was the shrunken face of a little boy staring back at him, completely lifeless. The face was beyond pale as if all the blood had drained from it. The face belonged to a dead boy. There were cuts, bruises, blisters all over his face. And underneath it, it said, Philadelphia Police Department, information wanted. The unknown child has been brutally murdered, found two weeks ago in the woods. Police are looking for the identity of the person murdered, but also the killer. Please notify the homicide unit in Philadelphia, day or night. Wait, it was a crime scene photo? Yeah, it's like a missing, please help. But it was like the corpse. Yeah. And <laughs> little William, he was so shocked. First, at the fact that the police called the little boy a person. He's like, this is a child, not a person. The boy was maybe four years old. His naked body had been found in a cardboard box, which was ironically marked fragile, handle with care. The box was just thrown into the woods, just 15 feet from a road that was close to an all-girls boarding school. Like, what does that all mean? Why does the boy have so many cuts and bruises from head to toe? How do you cut someone that many times when, when you're only like three feet, four inches tall? So many cuts on such a tiny body. William didn't know it at the time, but 
Later, the boy was brought into the morgue for examination, and the examiners realized that he was very malnourished. He was as tall as a four-year-old, but he had the weight of a two-year-old. So he was obviously starved before he was murdered. He had scarring on his legs that showed that he had halted growth. He had been in pain for at least the past year. Nobody even knew his name, and they would never know his name. And if you're like, wow, this is sounding familiar, it's because it probably is. He was known as America's Unknown Child, or more familiarly, the boy in the box. Oh, yeah. So little William is staring at the poster and he felt like this one moment changed his entire life. He was in a trance. He just felt something inside of him. From that point on, he started talking back to his parents. He had decided to change his life. I'm not going to be a strange loner in school. He started hanging out with friends. He started smoking and drinking. He would pick fights with bigger kids. He started using his BB gun to shoot younger boys in the butt, and he would just burst out laughing. He was a bit of a bully and a smartass. And as he got older, he just got angry. I think that moment really showed him how harsh the world is, like how cruel it is. So he feels like if I'm not going to be that boy in the box, I got to be the bigger bully. I got to do something crazier. His grades were plummeting. I mean, all he wanted to do was skip class, stay in the basement and read detective novels, which, you know, you might think is cool. Maybe he's going to be a psychologist or something. But no, at the time, detective novels were like the video games of today. Like if you skip school to play video games in your basement, a lot of people on the news would be like, oh my gosh, a serial killer in the making, violence, gun violence is all through video games, right? They were always on the news being linked to juvenile delinquency and detective novels. (laughs) They're like, stop reading books. It's rotting your brain. And I mean, I guess some people were alarmed by the fact that William was obsessed with murder. But not on the like, hee hee, I can't wait to stab someone kind of way, but more in the sense of he was obsessed with police officers and crime solving and investigative work. His favorite book was The Great Detectives, which was a nonfiction book that just compiles the best real life adventures of some of the most famous detectives in history. And while reading, he came across Eugene Vidoc of Paris and he thought, wait a minute, that's me. I relate. We are both wild childs. We're both, you know, breaking the laws. I mean, obviously, William's not killing people, but he is, you know, a bully. He's doing things that he shouldn't be doing. And and then he crossed over to the good side. And that's what William wanted to do. He wanted to do some good, but he just didn't know where. So that's when 17-year-old William decides he's going to join the army just like Eugene. So after the army, he gets a sociology degree from Temple University. He goes to become a Philadelphia police officer. Then he joins the FBI and he made a name for himself. He was the mob investigator for Boston, Detroit and Philadelphia and sometimes the New York area. He was one of the most fearless mob investigators, which like mobs are freaking scary. Like, you know, I'm scared of something when I don't really talk about it often. Mobs are scary. He became a renowned polygraph examiner and an interrogator. He had spent his days and nights talking to just all sorts of people, sex workers, pimps, politicians, doormen. He was the type that could get information out of anyone. He just had this skill inside of him. It's not even something he could teach. He could easily transform into good cop, bad cop, the best friend, the charismatic jokester FBI agent, even the ruthless FBI agent that won't take no for an answer. I think it really helped that William never looked like an FBI agent. So he had this round baby face almost. This is one that I called Santa Claus. Mm. But when he was younger, it was more like a baby face. It's not that stone cold, all business agent, like, I don't really care about you. I just want to get this conviction. No, he looked approachable. He cried a lot. I love this man. He would be called out to a crime scene and he would just cry. He would sob. 
when he sees the crime scene? Yeah, there was a toddler who fell from a second story window and the emergency room almost wasn't able to revive him and he would cry. He would cry when his colleagues outed themselves as racist, which I mean, he cried because he hated racist, by the way. I know. I know. You just never know these days. It could go either way. William was Jewish, but he read everything, the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, and he insisted that all religions at its core were just the same. We're all the same people. One time he flew all the way to Saudi Arabia to mentor their police force on polygraphs. He's that good. And at the end, he hugged the officers, burst into tears and said, I've read the Quran too. And I just want to say there's nothing between us and we share the same God. Just like he had bonded that quickly with them. And he just wanted another point of, you know, here, look at us. Like we're the same. He did it all. At one point, the FBI sent him undercover in a Caribbean cruise as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> oh yeah what? Under, and he sent the whole crew laughing first he told the criminals jokes and then he told them it's not really funny is it it's not a joke anymore you're going to jail yeah i know then william switched over to customs since his wife was pregnant and this seemed a little bit less intense he fought his way up to the ranks to be an assistant special agent in charge of the u.s customs in philadelphia so he was actually one of the most powerful federal agents in the mid-atlantic area he was responsible for criminal and drug law enforcement at ports airports coastlines and inland borders of all three states he was in charge of an $8 million budget, over 100 people, like 65 agents in the Philly office, plus field agents in New Jersey. So by the time that he's 50, he's got this prosperous, admirable, respectable career, a beautiful wife, and a family. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate, I wrap up in my coziest blanket, and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
I don't really like doing chores around the house. I'm going to be honest with you. And I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me. There is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days so at one point during all of this he meets a fellow crime stopper artist frank bender frank is probably the most interesting of the three like i feel like if there was a movie it's got to be on frank no offense everybody else ever since his first art class he just he knew he had a skill for it and that's not to be cocky i mean everybody told him non-stop that his artistic abilities were exceptional his art teacher why are you pointing at yourself (laughs) i relate (laughs) His art teachers didn't just praise him. They were straight up envious of his abilities. Okay, maybe he's a little bit. <laughs> but Frank wondered, you know, what am I going to do with art? It's not that he cares about putting food on the table. Frank was one of those people. He didn't even care to be rich or wealthy or successful. None of that. He just, what am I going to do with this? He didn't necessarily grow up in an area where being artistic was the best way to survive. It was actually the opposite. When little Frank would lie down in bed at night, he could just hear gunshots booming through the area. One time it hit the brick side of his house. So Frank's dad was a mechanic and he always came home to drink himself to death and beat up Frank. That was the most time that they ever spent together when Frank was getting beat up by him. So Frank started getting enraged. He was like, you know what? You want to beat me up? Oh yeah, well, I'll beat you back up. So he starts weightlifting. He starts training. He starts bodybuilding. And what's fascinating is sometimes I share these stories and you really never know which way someone's going to go. I mean, I could easily say this is the childhood of someone who ended up hating the world and killing someone. It's just fascinating to think about. So now that Frank is 15, he's lifting a ton of weights, just pumping iron, you know, scooping that pre-workout into his mouth dry. And this time his dad was gearing to beat him up. He's winding up his fists, you know ready to go. He's winding, winding. And Frank lifts up his arm, blocks his dad's punch, cocked his arm and swung a roundhouse uppercut straight into his dad's face. His dad was knocked out cold and Frank's just standing over him. And when he came to, he's like, wow, that was amazing. That was so good, Frank. I didn't even know you had that in you. 
And from that moment forward, Frank's dad respected him. They got along from that moment forward. His dad never beat him again. I think that there was no moral of this story. Okay, I just want to say no moral of this story, but fascinating, fascinating for sure. So that's good, right? Yeah. And Frank just won the citywide student art exhibit. And I mean, it's amazing. Not just that, but a notable realist painter had noticed Frank's work. His name was Walter Stempfig, and he encouraged Frank to try and get a scholarship at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. And he was accepted. But he soon realized the art industry had a little bit of scumminess in it. You know, I mean, he had exhibitions as a student, but his paintings wouldn't be returned to him. But he wasn't getting paid for them. So he's like, did somebody sell my freaking paintings and just rip me off? Which is fine. I don't even want the money, but this is just disgusting. So he quit. He literally quit and joined the army. And in his free time, he would sit in the engine room of the Navy and just sketch the men. After two years of that, he did some modeling. He was very handsome, I tell you. This is the one that gets bald later. I think by choice, which doesn't really matter, but it's very shiny and very handsome still. He had a muscular but a very lean physique, and he was quite a ladies' man. Frank even said, growing up, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I'd meet girls in bars, other places. I had sex constantly. I never really tried at sex to be honest single woman married woman they picked me up as often as i picked them up i mean it was all chemistry i had sex in a whole lot of cars at the young age of 26 my age frank claimed he had sex with 165 different women well my number is 164 so right there with each other i'm just kidding (laughs) so at this point he meets a girl named jan proctor and he ends up marrying her which by the way he still had sex with other women while they were married but in his defense he said after i got married i had sex with way less women that's what love is you know and sacrifice exactly and any affairs that i had were with people who you know, believed in me. Like I believed in them. We supported each other. It it wasn't a one night stand. It was like we were bonding, bonding with good friends and bonding with sex. Besides, my wife always encouraged me to have a girlfriend or two. Jan was the type of woman who liked to spend some time by herself. You know, she's like, get out of the house. You're so annoying. I don't, I don't want to have sex right now. I'm too busy. I'm kind of tired. So just go get out of here. Skedaddle. So the couple had their rules. Any woman Frank wanted to start dating, he would have to bring over and get Jan's approval. If and only if she approved, they would have their blessing to date. So like an open relationship. Yeah. So Frank would explain, Jan, my wife, really liked one of my girlfriends, Joan. She would say, why don't you and Joan go down to the shore for a couple days? Go on a little vacation. I just want to be alone. Jan was relieved that there was someone helping satisfy some of Frank's impossible sexual needs. Besides, Joan was respectful. She knew that Jan was the queen of the house and she was Frank's wife. And Frank respected that Jan was the ultimate mother. She put her heart and soul into raising the kids, taking care of the house, even when he was making no money. So Frank was a freelance photographer at this point and it was just so hard for him to make money and the family was always financially struggling so frank started taking evening classes at the pennsylvania academy of arts that he freaking hated he studied painting drawing and one of his professors said you know what i think you need to get into sculpting it's a great way to get even more familiar with human anatomy and i think it's smart so frank's like okay i mean that makes sense but i can't afford to pay the tuition for the sculpting class and the anatomy class which you're recommending so So why don't I do this? He pays for the sculpting class and he had a convenient friend who worked for the city morgue. And he said, hey, buddy, can I get a tour of the morgue? I just need to study faces. You know, I just need to study face structures and all of that. And at first he was so excited. He thought it'd be beautiful. Cold silver tables filled with pristine bodies. 
that are all dead, calm, eerie, almost like those movies just lined up in a row. But instead, he found cadavers swollen by disease, badly decomposing, lots of bugs, people smashed in accidents, eaten by animals. He had saw a body of a man that had been struck by a train and cut in half. He saw a medical examiner who had a torso, not even the legs, just the torso of a body standing upright on his table, breastplate removed, ribs cut, and the medical examiner plunged his hand deep into the chest cavity to check something. It was not glamorous and wonderfully medical. It was the cycle of life. And he, Frank was disgusted, but intrigued mainly by one body in particular. It was an unidentified woman in her fifties. She was a Jane Doe. She had this blonde hair and her body had been found in a field near the airport with three bullets in her head. So Frank is studying her face and her skull was completely shattered on one side by the gunshots and her face was so decomposed that there was no ID that they could give to the victim. None of her fingerprints or missing persons bulletins came up with a match. So his friend walks over. Oh yeah, this is one we'll never solve. I mean, who knows what she looks like? And Frank stared at her and he just couldn't help it. He's like, I know, I know what she looks like. The medical examiner, the head medical examiner walked over because they're intrigued. Like, did you just say you know what she looks like? I do. I mean, the face is in the skull and her skull is here. Sure, like half of it is collapsed because of the bullet, but I I, I know what she looks like. Frank, have you ever tried forensic art? No, I'm a high school graduate. I didn't even graduate college. I don't even know what the word forensic means. Well, you need to find out. You don't know how many cases go unsolved because nobody can figure out the victim's identity. How do you even figure out who has the motive to kill that person if you can't help get an identity on the person? We may also find her killer. Would you help us do it? Uh, sure, I can try. Well, we can't pay you anything. I mean, that's okay. I can still try. And with that, Frank got to work. It took him a total of eight hours across multiple nights since he still had a full-time job. And he measured the skull, drew a rough sketch of the face structure. Then he started talking to other artists about sculpting techniques. He started shaping a face out of clay and made a plaster mold of the bust and painted the face and even placed a blonde wig on top. Frank said as he was doing this, he saw every feature of this woman's face and how the form of one part of her face flowed into all the other parts. And that weekend, he went back to the morgue and found the medical examiner. They were so impressed. So was the police. Up until that point, the police had never used a forensic sculpture. Um, They had just done like composite sketches. But they decided, why not? This was free. Let's distribute photos of Frank's bust, his sculpture of the murdered Jane Doe. And after five months, a detective all the way from New Jersey calls and said, wait a minute. That looks like a woman that we have reported missing by the Chicago Police Department. You should call them. So this went up and down the East Coast, and it was a woman named Anna Mary Duval. She was 62 years old. She had left Chicago O'Hare Airport on October 15th. Nobody knew where she was headed, but she never came back. Her body was found dumped at the Philadelphia airport. Her case would still remain unsolved, but at least her family could bring her home. And the police were shocked. They had used tons of other types of forensic arts, sketch artists, you know, with literally no success. And now here's this high school educated kid who didn't even know what forensics meant come to completely shake up the forensics world, or at least in this Philadelphia area. And he was good. Everyone kept saying Frank was the king of seeing dead people. I don't know if that's a compliment. They said that his ability to see what someone looks like while alive, even when he only saw them dead, not even a picture of their dead corpse, but literally a skeletonized head was eerie. It was almost paranormal at times. Some people were straight up scared of Frank. They thought he was a con artist. Do you get it? A con artist. Yeah, someone take my mic away from me. It seems like Frank had found his calling in life, but it didn't pay like ever. 
And Frank Godley was not the type of guy to work for the money. Till the end of his life, Frank was never well off, even though he was one of the top professionals in this field. Really? And if you're like, well, none of them are that well off, you would be surprised at how much money people make at forensic experts, like the ones that testify in court, because you get paid by the defense attorneys, you get paid by prosecutors for your time on the stand. So he just was never well off. And thankfully, he had a wife that didn't really care. She was supportive. She wanted to help him with his work by bringing in more money. The two of them really just got fulfillment from seeing cases being solved, which sounds romantic, but it was, um, it was morbid at best. Sometimes Frank was allowed to take skeletonized skulls to use clay to build a bust on top of the skull. So he never really built it from scratch. He would use the skull to build the bust. And then take away the skull, right? So the early stages of forensic sculptures was interesting. His wife would come home and see bugs crawling out of her stove. And she's like, what the hell? She'd open it up and it's a freaking skull inside. What the hell is this, Frank? I'm just trying to dry it out enough so I can apply the clay. Frank, I don't care what you're trying to do. Come take the fucking head out of the oven and go visit your mom. She keeps calling. So this was their life. Wait, wait, wait. He's baking it? Bake in the head. To make it dry? Yeah, so he can put some clay on top. Mm. He said, mm, that's my next excuse. <laughs> they had two young daughters in the house and they would just stumble upon boxes, open it up, and what do you know? A skull. The whole house smelled like death, but Frank couldn't stop. I mean, he had so many cases that impacted him forever. One of them was a young black woman's skull or skeleton was found in a wooded area near a high school football field. She had been raped, murdered, and her skeletonized remains were found a year after her death. So near the skeleton was this really frilly blouse. And Frank was just so torn up about that blouse. It's like this young woman full of life, you know, so full of innocence. And this is how she exits. Like this is, this is horrible. So he created this bust for her and he, he posed her as if she was looking up, gazing into the stars, gazing into her future, and he called her the girl with hope. So at first, it didn't get any hits for the police because, I mean, they thought maybe, maybe Frank's not right all the time. Maybe he has some misses because, you know, he just had the skeletonized remains. Maybe this isn't what she looks like because nobody identifies her. And then it was exhibited at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia, and a young girl was walking through, and she grabbed her mom and said, Mom, Mom? Doesn't that look like Aunt Rosella? Oh my gosh. And her family burst into tears in the museum. It was Rosella. It was actually at this presentation that Frank ran into a William Fleischer. And they were talking about, you know, their just small talk, plans to meet up for lunch. And Frank knew William. He was one of the most powerful FBI agents in the area. And William was shamelessly in awe of this artist. So skilled. Many thought that he had paranormal activities. Like they just wanted to pick each other's brains. So the first lunch led to a weekly ritual. So they would meet up once a week, just going on about cold cases, how they're solving what. And they had both turned their raging daddy issues into a fiery passion for justice. That's what they were bonding on. So one day, William decides to stop by Frank's studio. And uh, this was not a very nice area. It was a very broken down building in a not so great area. And the warehouse was concrete floors, no windows, only had a few skylights for natural ah. lights. <laughs> and on the shelves. Uh, you got me. You got me. If William didn't know Frank, he definitely would have arrested him. Okay, it looked like a serial killer's den. There were also not just skulls and skulls, but just nudes of women, consensual, of course, all over the place, ladders, bricks, erotic Parisian, Parisian books. But in the center of all of this was a handgun shaped like a penis. And underneath it, 
It was artistically written. The sex pistol that won the West. And uh, Frank's assistant says, oh, William, welcome. Um, Frank, I don't know if Frank's expecting you, but he's been up all night. When he gets going, you know, there's no stopping him. So William makes it over to the kitchen and there's Frank shirtless, barefoot, with an apron on, on the cement floor, stirring a huge pot. What's cooking? Oh, you don't want to know. That's it. You're never coming to the potluck. So a lot of other forensic sculptors, they would use flesh-eating beetles to get rid of the flesh on the skull. So you release the beetles, yeah, and they just what? eat up all the flesh. I guess that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I know. What? But Frank hated them. He hated working with flesh-eating beetles. I mean, I imagine most people didn't like it. I would imagine that these beetles would probably try to bite you because, what are you, full of flesh, right? So instead... Flesh-eating beetle. I know. I don't even want to Google it. I don't even want to look at it. So instead, Frank would not use the beetles, and he would put a fleshy skull in boiling water with half a cup of bleach and a dash of borax to prepare them for sculpting. Sometimes he would bake them to dry them out. And Frank would say, well, that's unfortunate for you, William, because I make a mean chicken in this pot. So Frank admitted that he did a lot of the cooking in the same pot that he used to boil heads. So this is (laughs) so, okay, fine. They don't like potlucks, but they like working on cases together. That's fine. So, for example, they were looking for a fugitive named Hans. Now, Hans is a master of disguise. He was a black market guns dealer, a drug dealer, an armed robber and a hitman for the East Coast gangs which is what a resume. I mean, imagine trying to put that all on one page. The guy was intense. Hans was a self-taught chemist, and at one point he had operated one of the largest methamphetamine labs in the entire East Coast. He was also tried for murder. He tried to murder other federal witnesses, some of them being friends of William Fleischer. So when he was finally caught, he was convicted of not murder, but unfortunately, meth possession and armed robbery. So they gave him 20 years in prison, maximum security lockup. But after a few years, he was over it. He's like, I don't really, this kind of sucks. So he staged a spectacular prison escape. Spectacular. So at the time, he was working as head of the prison shop. And he was making this wardrobe. So this is like a prison shop is where prisoners will make stuff. And they'll sell it while they pay the prisoners like next to nothing. It's literally evil. So he was in charge of making a wardrobe. And he decided to add a hollow part inside the wardrobe where he would hide. So the wood that he was using was very, very light. So he stained it to resemble oak. Which if the delivery men didn't know, they'd say, okay, no, well, no wonder this is going to be heavy. It's oak. So mm-hmm. he got inside. He also had another prison buddy, Robert, that was tucked inside with him. And the two of them were carried out by the delivery man into freedom. That's which, crazy. Yeah. You're like, hidden what? Hidden in plain sight? Exactly. In the little wardrobe, the hidden compartment. Now you're like, wow, what a good friend Robert must have been. Why would Hans want him to escape with him? Robert was a horrible guy. He was a sadistic gang leader who strangled and carved up his girlfriend. But more on him later. So anyways, the clueless delivery men load the wardrobe into the truck and the two make a great escape. The police were stressed. They knew that both of them were highly dangerous and profilers thought that it was inevitable that both of them would kill again. So this is going to be top priority to get these two back behind bars. But the years went on and on and on. And eventually decades had passed a decade. So the pictures of Hans were no longer useful. I mean, there was no way that he looked like that after 10 years. Are you kidding? No one knew what now 44-year-old Hans would look like. He would just blend into society. He might have not even skipped town. So that's when they decided to bring Frank into the case. His job was to create sketches of Hans' features as he aged through the decade, and he was stumped. 
This was Frank's first federal case. And this was the first case of national importance. Not only that, but Frank felt like his life was in danger for the first time ever. He was creeped out. He told William, you know, we were doing stakeouts and we think that this is Hans. And I got a close look at him. I mean, it wasn't that close, but the guy looks just like me. He's the same size, same age, same body type. He's also an artist and it's spooky. I feel like it's my doppelganger, like an evil twin. And I'm not afraid of anybody, you know that. But I saw him through the telephoto lens when we were doing a stakeout and his eyes, they were so cold. He knows who I am and the threat that I represent to him, to his way of life. And I can feel that he, he wants me dead. I mean, if that is him, that is. One time Frank was on the lookout and he saw Hans through the lens wearing a baseball cap, sunglasses, and a cigarette as he stood on the sidewalk next to a pharmacy. Hans noticed the telephoto lens directed at him. Frank was alone, by the way. And he stared straight into it, cracked a smirk, and ran off. Frank was the only one that witnessed Hans, ever. He was super shaken from this encounter. He said that Hans was cold as ice, just cold, cold, cold. I could feel feel clearly from his eyes that he wanted me dead. But what can I do? I mean, I've got to get to work. So he started creating a sketch of Hans, but he needed to think like Hans because that shapes what you look like. You know, what would I do? What would my habits be? Because that's going to affect your appearance. Do I smoke? Do I do drugs? How would that affect the aging of my skin? Would I have gained weight at this point or do I try to keep in shape? Because again, that affects the face a lot. But then he was hit with this realization that, oh my God, Hans had seen him. Frank was spying on him at at least two occasions and he was caught. So he just had this gut feeling that Hans was going to try and change his appearance. I mean, that made the most sense. Frank was sure the next color he was going to try out was to dye his hair blonde. He just had this feeling. So he put the blonde hair into his sketch and later to his bust and marched over to the federal agents. And they said, a blonde, really, Frank, the one thing that we know about him is that he's not a freaking blonde, you idiot. Well, this is what he looks like. And if you catch him within the two weeks, he's going to be bleached blonde. I I promise you that. Some kind of joke you are paranormal forensic sculptor, my ass. We like to do it the old school way where we just bust in, bam, 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 you know. But Frank insisted and the FBI, they really didn't have any better options. So they scanned the sketch and distributed it to other agents. And a week later, Hans's wife, Barbara, had slipped up because they had been tailing her for a while. They were following her home from work as she always did. And she ended up taking a route that wasn't her usual. And she's making this big effort to throw anyone off her trail. I mean, just chaotic tight turns, random U-turns, running red lights, driving through tight alleyways. She thought that she had lost anybody if they were following her. But she didn't. Instead, they followed her straight into the parking lot of Penrose Diner. She went in, but that wasn't her final destination. She waited a while until it felt safe, and then she got out, came out, left her car in the parking lot, looked around, and crossed the street over to the Quality Inn. It was perfect. The police said, this inn, he chose it for a reason. It had views in all directions, which is useful for someone in the run because you don't want to be cornered by authorities. So they busted in, got back up, and Hans was surrounded. He raised his hands and he went without a fight. He was wearing a hat, sunglasses, and you guessed it, underneath that hat, a new hairstyle. It was cut short and bleached blonde. The agents started calling Frank a visual detective. I mean, this was perfect. They were going to catch some of the most wanted criminals now. I mean, this is amazing. So at this point, Frank's reputation is getting out and he gets a call from Bob Lescorn. Bob is the head of the U.S. Marshals Service. 
This is a this is an intense category. He was the chief inspector at the time, and he said, "Frank, I need your help. I need your help catching someone, but it's super top secret. You can't even tell your family, your wife, your colleagues, nobody. The person we need to catch, I can't tell you on the phone, but it's top ten most wanted." One day, a black car pulls up in front of Frank's house with tinted windows. He kisses his wife goodbye, gets in, and they said that the chief inspector of the U.S. Marshal's office was flying from Virginia to meet with Frank. They met at an undisclosed location. They waited two hours for him to land because nobody is ever allowed to know the flight schedule of the chief inspector, I guess. I don't know. It's really weird. And when they finally met, Bob told Frank, we're going to be chasing down the mafia. The only person of interest right now, Alley Boy Persico. He's the underboss of the Colombo crime family in New York City. He was groomed to be the godfather of one of the five major American crime families. He had an even more notorious brother, Carmen the Snake Persisco, and both the brothers are familiar with law enforcement. So here's the lowdown on Alley Boy. Alley Boy had already served 16 years in prison for murder. Allegedly, he took the rap for his brother. They think that the snake murdered, you know, the victim. Then he was supposed to go to prison for extortion and loan sharking. But while he was out on bail, he went into hiding for the last seven years. If he's caught, he's facing another 20 plus years. This case is very high profile and it's oddly proved to be impossible. The FBI is not even sure that the brothers are still alive. They've gotten tips from all over the place. Honolulu, Japan, Miami, South America, but nothing has ever worked out. Listen, Frank, this is top priority for us, and we're putting a lot of resources into this. We do have a photo of Alley Boy from 12 years ago. Here you go. Whoa, what happened to his face? So in the picture, the whole left side of Alley Boy's face was scarred. The left part of his lower lip was dark blue. He had gotten into a fight with someone in Sing Sing, and they threw acid in his face. What? But do we know if he, he's gotten work to recover or heal or plastic surgery? We don't know. We know that this isn't much, but are you willing to do it or not? Because we need a bust of what Alley Boy would look like today within the next 10 days. Frank's like, this is incredibly ambitious and this is going to require the utmost dedication, but absolutely, I'll do it. Okay, then you're in. So Frank, here's what we know. He's a heavy smoker and a drinker. He's married, but he loves to cheat on his wife. He has lots of girlfriends, illegal too. One of them, Mary, she's 15. He was 40 when they met. They're really close. Until a rumor started going around that Mary was working with the FBI to tell them where Alley Boy was hiding. So the family needed to get rid of her. They put three bullets in her head and dumped her on the street. Okay, so you want me to? Okay. So Frank, for the next 10 days, was working on the bust, but also heading into emergency meetings in New York. The head of the operation was based in New York City. So he's being transported on a high security plane the entire time. Imagine criminal minds, you know, where they're always like that. He managed to finish the bust in 10 days. And four months later, Alley Boy was caught. Alley Boy was caught. He had been living a low-key life in Connecticut, and he mainly just watched TV in his apartment and read newspapers. The police received a t few tips in which apartment building he might have been in when they showed all the other cops this bust. And when they showed the landlady the old photos of Alley Boy, the one that they had taken like 10 years ago, she's like, I've never seen this person in my life. But when they showed her the picture of Frank's bust, she said, oh yeah, that's the guy that lives upstairs. His name's John Longo. He just called me to come look up at his stove. He's making some sauce and his, his stove went off and he's pretty pissed. So the police smiled and they said, don't worry, ma'am, we'll fix this stove. So Alley Boy, after seven long years, was arrested. Frank was so proud of himself on this one. And now that the case was wrapped up, he was allowed to talk about it. He told William all about it. And William was so impressed. And he's like, I don't know how you do it, Frank. You're a major asset to law enforcement in this country. Alley Boy is what we call in the FBI, big fish. 
and you caught him. The next was Nas. Lil Nas X. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, Robert Nas, the guy who escaped prison with Hans in the wardrobe. The one that strangled and carved his girlfriend and was a sadistic gang leader. Yeah, that one. Yeah, now Frank needed to work on catching him. And the stakes were even higher now. The police suspected that he was behind several disappearances of young women in Delaware County in Pennsylvania. I mean, who is this guy? What did he even go to prison for? Let's talk about December 11th. Robert had gone on a date with a girl named Elizabeth Landy. And um, afterwards, at Robert's place that he shared with other bike gang members, Elizabeth was just joking around and she playfully kicked Robert. But this sent him over the edge. He started to choke her until she passed out and he thought she was dead. He walked away, but 15 minutes later, she woke up and ran into the bathroom, locked herself in there. And he's like, you better get out of there. I'm going to blow your brains out. She gets out. They have makeup sex, but Elizabeth is still super uneasy. And she tells him, I think I want to break up with you. I think you're too abusive. This would not do in Robert's world. He hit her on the head with a board, bludgeoned her to death with a baseball bat, and even hung her corpse in the garage to show off to his biker buddies. He would giggle and say, well, at least she's not going to bother me anymore. But you guys, I need help to get rid of her body. So they wrapped up her body in a sheet, put her in the trunk of a car, and all of her stuff was burned, and she was thrown into a shallow grave off the main highway near New Jersey. Her body was never found. Her parents reported her missing, but there was never enough evidence to arrest Robert. That is, until one of his friends came out and gave the cops his testimony. Robert would be one of the first people in all of Pennsylvania history to be convicted of first-degree murder without a body. But in prison, he escaped. And since his escape, nobody had seen or heard from him in years. And Frank was screwed. There was even less about him than the previous two. All they had were the original mugshots of his arrest that were over 10 years old now. In these photos, Bob was, well, Robert, Bobby, Robert was lean, muscular, bearded. His arms were tattooed with a blue parrot, a skull, a dagger, and a swastika, and the words born to lose. Frank completed his bust, and somehow it resembled a young Clark Kent. Yeah, Superman. He's like, I feel like Robert's going to be clean shaven, wearing a button down shirt with the neat, dark hair trimmed over the years. Like, that's the feeling that I get. But that's weird. Who's going to believe me? You know, how is he going to go from a biker gangster to suddenly an all-American family man? Like, no police, no agent is going to look at this and say, you know what? You're right, Frank. The marshals were doubting him. So he's making like what? Educated predictions? Yeah. On like how people have habits over time. How would you try to stay gone if you were a sadistic gang leader who escaped from prison? So he's doing that. And with his expertise in female, or I was going to say female anatomy, which is true. He was a very, you know, he's very into women. But his expertise in anatomy, he was able to kind of predict how smoking would affect your skin, the way that your face is shaped, how stress would affect lines on your face. Crazy, no? But, but also very enlightening to the fact that I guess your daily habits really do shape the way you look, which is terrifying. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these 
dry kibbles. It's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready to serve packs which is super convenient all you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet developed recipes for as little as two dollars a day and you can adjust the recipe selection portion sizes and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule get 50 percent off your first box of fresh healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango that's 50 percent off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. And while he's working on this case and the U.S. Marshals are like, yeah, you're an idiot, that's not true, he's getting stressed and he meets up with a woman named Betty for lunch. Betty. Oh, Betty is a pioneer in forensic art. She did facial reconstructions for big name magazines. She even helped reconstruct the skulls of seven of the unidentified victims of John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer. She was a legendary woman. He says, listen, Betty, I need your help. I just don't have enough information about this subject that we're trying to catch. So Betty's like, you know what? I I think I know. um, I think I know someone who could help you. His name's Richard. He's a criminologist. So he should be able to better understand the habits and what Robert might be doing now. So enter into the scene, Richard Walter, the serial killer hunter. So Frank and Richard didn't immediately like each other. They were literal polar opposites. Frank loved women. He loved dressing casually, talking casually. Richard, on the other hand, was very reserved and completely compartmentalized his life. But Frank was too charismatic. Even when Richard was too sarcastic and kind of mean, Frank would laugh genuinely at all of his jokes. And Richard would say, how can you hate anybody that laughs at your jokes? Frank immediately started calling Richard Rich, which Richard hated. And he opened up to Richard about his difficulties with this Robert case. He said, all right, well, Frank, tell me about the murder. The problem is I I don't know enough about him to depict how he's going to look now. The photographs are like a decade old and I don't know his personality or his habits. Like, is he married? Is he single? Is he still slim? Or is he spreading with middle-aged? Does he exercise? How does he eat? 
And Richard was interested. He said, I think I can tell you a bit about him. I've seen hundreds of cases like this involved with bikers. He's macho, aggressive. He's got this exaggerated sense of importance. He's very concerned about his image, but he's probably dispatched his body brutally like he would toss away trash and simply for the reasons of power, not sex or fantasy or Satanism or other nonsense. He just, he's tired. He wants to move on. So I think your theory is right. I think Robert now would probably be a clean-cut individual living in the suburbs. He will probably be married to a compliant woman who has no idea about his past. And he presents a wholesome image to the community because it would give him more opportunities that way, which at the end of the day is what he cares about. Wow. So the U.S. Marshals, they were confused because they're like, we always thought once a biker, always a biker. You know what I mean? It's a way (laughs) of life. It's a lifestyle. You don't choose the biker life. It chooses you. But Richard came in and was like, trust me, bro. So they trusted him. They decided to trust Frank and the psychologist, Richard. So Frank submitted his bust. It was published everywhere, even on America's Most Wanted. And a call comes in from someone from Michigan. The picture of Robert. Hello, the picture of Robert. It reminds me of a, a Richard Ferrer. He's married with two kids. They caught him. It was Richard. They were right on. Right on. Frank would just laugh and tell Richard all the time, Richard, you read criminals' minds the way I read women. And from there, the two became friends. So a little about Richard Walter. First, uh, the Walter family, they lived in a small scenic town in Seattle. Richard was raised by strict, no-nonsense parents. They were incredibly tough on their four kids, but they always told them, you got to make something out of yourself. Both of the parents looked at Richard with a bit more contempt than the rest of the siblings because they just felt like he wasn't going to make anything out of himself. He just never fits in. He's weird. Like he's he's too much into piano and singing. And like we like to watch football. And why are you watching the opera? Who the what kind of kid watches the opera? Here's a fascinating detail, though. Richard's mom just has it going on. Okay, in that head of hers from the outside, she looks like a sweet little housewife that knits in her living room armchair. But she's incredibly smart cunning and if neighbors had any trouble they called viola instead of the police for example one neighbor called and said viola help my husband is sitting on the armchair with a loaded gun shoved to his face and he won't give me the gun and he's threatening to kill himself please come over so viola drove over there snatched the loaded gun from his hands sat down and said what the hell do you think you're doing for 30 minutes she lectured him you're being selfish you're scaring your wife look at how much she loves you do you know how beautiful and special life is you idiot and you're just trying to throw it away for what the couple actually went on to have children together and grandchildren who by the way at this man's funeral when he died of old age they thanked viola for making their family possible This is just like one of three suicides she was credited with preventing. She was just kind of a ballsy bitch. I love her. So this is the type of influence that Richard is growing up under. And he too had an incident that shaped his life. When he was 10, he was in the car with his mom. They were going home from school and they saw two people standing on the side of the road. There was a big, big man and a small little child that was bleeding. So as she drove closer, she stopped, opened the back door and said, get in, I'll take you to the hospital. She screamed. They get in and Viola's rushing and asking the little boy in front of this big man that's like five times her size. And she says, little boy, tell me the truth. What did he do to you? Did he hurt you? Tell me. I'm not going to let him hurt you ever again. The little boy said, my daddy beat me and he was sobbing. 
When they get to the hospital, the dad jumps out of the car and starts making a run for it. Viola rushes the baby to the hospital entrance, flags down a local sheriff and tells him everything. They catch the dad. Richard and Viola had to ID him in a photo lineup and it came out that the dad was a sadist. He twisted the kid's arms in opposite directions until they snapped and he tried to do it with the boy's legs, but he couldn't manage to do it. It's said that he enjoyed every second of it. And Richard said, of course, this was awful, but it was it's fascinating. So this event inspired Richard to go on to study psychology at Michigan State University. And the, his first semester, he broke the school record. He completed 11 courses, which is seven times more than the usual course load. And he maintained a nearly perfect GPA. So then he moves to LA where he worked for the prestigious Cedar sinai Medical Center as a clinical psychologist. And once he felt like he conquered that challenge, he became a medical examiner assistant at the L.A. County Morgue. His boss, his mentor, was a reputable man who handled the autopsies of Marilyn Monroe, Robert F. Kennedy, and Sharon Tate. Richard was something else. He was almost too good at his job. He was so good at compartmentalizing. He was truly one of those people where I'm like, thank God that he went down this route because if his life were different, if he chose a different path, he could have easily been a serial killer. For example, one morning he gets a call. His dad just died. And he was so used to having mental discipline and separating his emotions from life that he got up, got dressed for work, went to all of his meetings in time. And during a break, out of the blue, a woman asked him, oh, what does your father do for a living? Oh, he died. Oh, I'm so sorry. When? Oh, this morning, two hours ago. And he went about the rest of his day. And that night he stood there, stared into the mirror, and he said he was shocked at how cold his eyes were. He felt nothing. He was so scared of himself. And he had learned the lesson that his mentors had taught for ages. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, you do not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. So he felt the need to reinvent himself and he started obsessively collecting antiques because this was his way of reminding himself that there are still beautiful things in this world. And it really helped. So once he's done with the morgue, he wanted to be a psychologist again. So he goes back to Michigan and he worked at a prison, one of the most violent prisons in the entire state. Every single day, Richard had six appointments with murderers, rapists, pedophiles, sadists, and serial killers. And every single day, they tried to intimidate him. Or they tried to convince him that they found Jesus and they should be let out. Now, if that didn't work, they would threaten to strangle him, cut his heart out and piss on it, or even eat his kidneys. One of his patients had stapled his own children's eyelids open and urinated into his kid's eyes. He worked with child molesters that had hundreds of victims, and Richard would take all of this with a cold stare. I mean, the only times he would really break the silence was just to make sure that there was no miscommunication between him and the patients. He would say things like, okay, let's be clear. I'm looking at your file. The reason you're in prison is because your neighbors don't want you to break into their house and rape the cat again. So you're like, wow, what a chomp. Well, Richard, you see, had the pleasant task of judging whether or not someone was irredeemable or whether or not he might be a danger to himself or others, whether they had the hope at redemption. He had to judge them correctly. If he said, yes, they're good, and they were let out on parole, literal lives could be at stake. It was a lot of pressure. So his life from the outside would seem depressing. His office was a small rectangular concrete block with an old wooden desk and a single picture of a wall on the flower. But Richard felt it was the oh, perfect a place. picture of flower on the wall. <laughs> a wall on the flower. Right, okay. <laughs> and Richard felt it was the perfect place to study evil. 
Then he was promoted to a more intense prison. This one felt like a game, honestly. It was pretty wild. Richard had buttons that he could press and he could turn off inmates' hot showers or put them on prison loaf diets where all their meals would be thrown into a blender and baked into a hard, tasteless brick. So the idea was either these guys learn to control themselves or else Richard, the psychologist, will control them. Okay, that sounds like a sick experiment. Yeah, but Richard loved it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But then a producer at America's Most Wanted called and said, Richard, we need your help on a case we've talked about before. Oh yeah, Richard and Frank helped solve the case of John List, the man who killed his entire family and threw them in the ballroom of his 19-room mansion. Do you remember that? Okay, so America's Most Wanted said that they need to catch the most wanted mass murderer in all of America, the one that killed his entire family in New Jersey. Yes, he did. He lined them up in the ballroom of his house, they had a ballroom. He literally dragged his children's bodies around the house, leaving a 40-foot track of blood around the mansion. And after he lined them up one by one, he went back to work in his office, making calls, checking off little things in his planner, writing letters to his pastor to apologize. I'm not going to make it to Sunday school class for like a week. And when Richard started working on this case, John Liss had been gone for 18 years. He'd been missing a fugitive. So Richard's sitting there and he's talking to Frank and they start talking about, okay, we should work on the John List case together. And Frank immediately chipped in. I mean, this will really show the FBI that we're onto something. So Frank had to get a good idea of what John List would look like today. He needed to get an idea of what John List was like in general. Who else would know better than Richard? Frank said, okay, well, so he's 64 years old in his early 40s and he's got dark hair and a widow's peak. I think now he's probably bald, right? With maybe little bits of gray hair on the side of his head. Richard agreed. Whatever hair he has, it's very neat. He's a very neat person. He's probably still going to be an accountant and very careful about his appearance, almost in a professional way. John was a meat and potatoes man, though, and he's going to remain one. He's not from the jogging fitness gym generation. He's got a very rigid personality that's not malleable. So it's to the point that it's pathological. So you think he's going to have saggy skin on the neck? Because that's usually what happens when you have like a meat and potatoes diet. Maybe a slackened jaw? Probably looks a lot older now. Quite. Do you think he's very religious? Does that alter how someone looks or behaves? Hmm. I know some people might think that he's very religious because of, you know, he was writing letters to his pastor after the murders, but he's not religious. This has nothing to do with religion. It's just a cover. Behind this church-going facade, he's just a pure psychopath all about power. He wanted to dominate his entire family, but they wouldn't listen. This was going to be his way of creating a new life, and he wanted to do it on his terms. That's why he wiped out his whole family, including his mom. This is the type of personality that a man who destroys his family does. So you think he's crazy? Oh, no. Not at all. In fact, he's extremely rational. He's a bit of a snob, feels superior to other people. He loves to live beyond his means. He has no conscience. He stole money from his mother, never a tinge of guilt. Why? Because he felt like he deserved her money, that's why. So what do you think pushed him over the edge? Well, for someone like him, he doesn't face challenges and own up to his failures like a man. All these failures are because of that bitch or this wife or that mom. So he's feeling like he's losing the power, the control. He's becoming more isolated. So you think there'll be anger in his face? Do you think he'll have guilt and anger on his face? Guilt? Are you kidding me? He doesn't know what the word guilt means. He doesn't feel anything at all, but relief and triumph. He's thrilled at what he did. The lack of guilt is what's going to allow him to disappear and adjust to a new life without any awkwardness. I predict he's probably settled into a reasonably comfortable life. At first, he would have moved far to get distance from the crime and gain a sense of freedom. 
You're going to feel free when you're far away from the crime scene. His first job would probably be something like a night clerk at a motel. He's already good with figures. He's an accountant, but he needs a job where he won't be seen or recognized. As he gets more comfortable, as more time passes, he's going to move into the accounting profession, maybe even join the church, remarry, and eventually move back within 300 miles of the murder scene. Why, why would he move back? Because familiar areas give him a sense of control, and that's what he's all about. Beneath his fake facade, he's still living beyond his means, and he's still having financial problems 18 years later. He's going to easily fit into a suburban community. He'll be wearing a suit and tie, but he's probably too old school to be wearing stripes or any modern type of suits. I'm talking the old-fashioned ones. He's going to be wearing thick black glasses, no wired glasses. I'm talking like the plastic ones. Wire trims don't look intelligent and authoritative and fancy enough. Okay, so now I get the Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah, Holmes he'll reference. most exactly. He'll most likely be remarried with a subservient woman who has no clue about his past, and to her, he's just good old John. This was everything Frank needed to finish his project. And America's Most Wanted aired the story of John List, and more than twenty million viewers watched the episode. Frank's bust was displayed for all of them. And then you know the story. Good old Wanda felt her former neighbor Bob Clark looked just like John List. She tipped off the police and finally, after 18 years, he was arrested. Richard's profiling was spot on. I mean, from what he said, he moved far away, then came everything spot on. This was the case that actually had Richard Walter become known as the living Sherlock Holmes because this is top 10 most wanted. Wow. And this case solidified the friendship between Richard and Frank. And through Frank, Richard becomes friendly with William. And in 1990, on a fateful day, they go to lunch on a Thursday, mainly complaining about the justice system and how victims were further victimized by the system. How everyone is just out there looking for their own departments, cared more about the department's reputation and their careers rather than sharing valuable information and solving crimes. For example, when Frank and Richard were working on the John List case, the FBI refused to share their profile with them. They're like, well, you're not working with us. You're working with America's Most Wanted right now, so we're not going to help you. So they thought, what if there was an organization, not on government dime, where money wasn't the motivation, where people could come together to solve cases, cases that the police were lagging behind? I mean, that happens more often than we like. And that was the birth of the Vidoc Society. This is awesome. It's literally a movie. I'm obsessed. (laughs) So William starts getting to work and he's writing to law enforcement specialists and asking them to join the Vidoc Society. Frank and William were so excited. Richard, on the other hand, he wasn't that happy. He's just a lone wolf. He's not really into groups. He just, what is this? Some sort of Sherlock Holmes club? Like it sounds, it sounds stupid. And he said, but I mean, I enjoyed Frank and Bill. So I had a nice time and I humored them both. I was just trying to be polite. But to be honest, I thought the whole idea was foolish he would soon change his mind because I got straight to work. Let's talk about some of their cases. So one of them is fascinating. Um, There was one called the Zoya Asur case and let's talk about Zoya. So it's Thanksgiving evening and Richard is coming home from a long trip to Hong Kong and Sydney where he was assisting on murder investigations. Like this guy's that good. So he's getting dressed to go to a friend's house for Thanksgiving dinner and his phone rings. It's a complete stranger. Richard's about to hang up, but it sounded like a sales call, you know? Someone's asking him for a favor as if, you know, he's getting ready to close the phone. But the guy says, Frank told me if I want to solve this case and exonerate myself, I have to call Richard Walter. And you're Richard Walter, right? You're one of the best profilers in the world and you'll give me good advice, right? So here's what's going on. A friend of one of Frank's girlfriends had been begging Frank to take on his case. Okay, that was really confusing. But Frank's girlfriend is like, hey, babe, like I've got this friend who is really struggling. His girlfriend is missing. It's like a weird one. Can you please help? 
So this guy's name is Kenneth, and he was an ophthalmologist whose girlfriend, Zoya, had gone missing recently. He had reported her missing, and the cops were not helpful. They were just like, oh, she'll show up eventually. Get over it. But Kenny was not convinced. They had been together for five years. I mean, he knew her. She would never do something like this. He was getting ready to propose. Some sources say that he had already proposed, and this was his fiance. I don't know. But it was getting serious. She just wouldn't leave. And for Frank, from the get-go, he just kind of wanted to help his girlfriend. That was his main vibe. He was a helpful person. But the one condition was, since this was like a referral, that you have to pass a polygraph with one of the best polygraph examiners, my buddy William, because then I know you're innocent and then I know I should be putting my resources into this. Would you be willing to do that? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, then maybe you can do that and talk to my other buddy, Richard. He's going to try to get you some information on this. Okay. So he calls Richard and tells Richard the whole story. His girlfriend recently moved to Florida to be with him. That's where he is. They were engaged and she vanished without warning. It's been two months now. But the strange thing is, for Richard, Kenny didn't sound like a grieving boyfriend. He just went on and on about how Zoya's brother is a law enforcement officer and he was suspecting Kenny of doing something. And he would say things like, which is pissing me off because why would I want my fiance dead? Like, why would I want her gone? That's so stupid. And Richard was not having any of it. He told Kenny, okay, I too will help you if you take the polygraph with my buddy Will. A week later, Zoya's remains were found in New Jersey. She had already been skeletonized, but they could see clearly that her cause of death was that she was shot three times in the chest. One of the bullets had pierced her heart. The chief investigator on the case in Jersey thought that uh, Zoya was (laughs) committed suicide. Okay, To preface, the place that Zoya was found was significant. You see, her sister had died there in a horse riding accident a few years ago. And now the police are like, well, and I looked up her record and she's on antidepressants because she's depressed, which like makes sense. So she probably killed herself. But that didn't sit right for the Batman trio because they're thinking, what? I mean, they even drove to the spot where Zoya was found and they were in so much shock. Her body had been taken by the police. Yeah, but they found parts of her clothes scattered in the woods, left behind, not taken into police evidence. There was a fingernail that wasn't taken into police evidence. I mean, the police were really half-assing the whole thing. Oh, and if that wasn't already suspicious, get this. First of all, the gun used to put three bullets in her chest was an eight-shot automatic, which you're like, what does that even mean? Apparently, it's not common for suicides. Why, you ask? Because you have to apply 12.5 pounds of pressure to fire the gun. And on top of that, it was a pretty long gun. And on top of that, it was found in a bag 27 feet away from Zoya's body. So William is saying, okay, I get it. A very petite young woman who's pretty physically weak and sickly fights through her way through this thick brush, carrying a gun that she's incapable of firing. I mean, especially if she turns it around her on herself and is trying to apply 13 pounds of pressure on the gun facing herself. So to test this theory, Frank's wife, who is about the same size as Zoya, went out into the woods with everybody. They emptied the same gun, got rid of all the bullets, like the same type of gun. She still wore a bulletproof vest just in case, and she tried to pull the trigger. All her strength, she couldn't do it. When it finally did go off, the gun was pointed over her shoulder. That was the only way she could have done it, and it wouldn't have shot her in the chest. So we're supposed to believe that Zoya did this not once, but three times, and then she put the gun in a bag and moved it 30 feet away? Like, that's crazy. So Kenny agreed. He's like, no, my fiance is not capable of killing herself. He was going to take a lie detector test. He was actually on the way. And he's like, no, my fiance is not capable of killing herself. And he started pointing the finger at Zoya's brother-in-law, the police officer. And he's like, I know that they were having an affair. So the Vidoc Society, they stopped in their tracks because they were actually able to clear the brother-in-law. But now they found Kenny's motive. So you knew your fiance was cheating on you. 
and the police refused to cooperate. They still ruled out Kenny, and they still said it was suicide. So the question is, why would Kenny agree to fly and meet with the Vidoc Society, even if the police had already essentially closed our case? And Richard said, it's because he thinks he's smarter than everyone, that's why. And it gives him a thrill to beat us. He relives the excitement and the sense of control of the murder itself. He's almost playing a dangerous game of catch me if you can. Kenny even allowed his polygraph exam to be filmed by the Vidoc Society and as well as CBS 48 Hours. No way. William himself administered the polygraph and he said, it's very rare for me to see a man that is this deceptive, clearly. Like it was bad. Kenny seemed to remember clear details of all of his days, except the day that his fiance goes missing. And it's just like, it's really dumb. The polygraph showed that Kenny was being deceptive about his alibi too, which, you know, why would a man who's innocent lie about his alibi? And at one point, Kenny and the polygraph straight up said, wait, hold on, hold on, I have to get my story straight. (laughs) (laughs) like what but he still did not confess to a crime and no matter what the vidoc society did the police did not want to reopen the case what and they they can't do anything about it you know so in the next couple of months her case was officially closed and william disappointedly announced the news to the vidoc society and he stated there is much truth to the old saying you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink it that's it that's it They wouldn't reopen the case. So, I mean, the Vidoc Society does as much as they can. But if law enforcement isn't willing to work with them, that's it. And what's crazy is that the Vidoc Society probably has a hand in solving a lot more cases than we think. Now, I wouldn't go as far to say all the cases or a lot of the cases, but a lot more than we know of. Because anytime they help solve a case, they're never featured in the news because police say we were dedicated to this case. I told the mom of the victim that I was going to get answers and I was going to get justice. And that's what I did. It's not like I closed the case and then some random secret society came and did my job. That's not what happened. I did it. Another case was that of Deborah. Deborah was 20 years old at the time and a math major and a former model. She was kind of doing it all. Obviously, with this type of ambition, this very busy schedule, she was a very responsible person for just being 20. She wanted to focus on school, never drank, smoked, nothing. She just worked hard and stayed up to study. She was amazing at math, but when it came to computer science, she really struggled. So one day she calls her parents and lets them know, hey parents, I'm gonna be on campus for a really long time today. I mean, I've got this project for computer science too. I'm stressed. I mean, like I gotta, I gotta put in a couple more hours in the computer lab. So two and a half hours go by and she calls again. At this point, it's 1.30 a.m. And she reassures her parents, hey guys, I just need a little more time for the project, but don't worry. My ex-boyfriend Kurt is here in the computer room with me and he's gonna walk me to my car afterwards. But the thing is, Kurt didn't wait. Shortly after her call to her parents, he was told that he needed to go home. So on his way out, he asks the security guard, David Dixon, that Deborah's still in the computer room and she needs an escort back to her car. A few minutes later, the computer logs show that something interrupted Deborah's work in the computer room. She made her last input and it looked like she had been interrupted in the middle of whatever she was doing. Around 3 a.m., Deborah's parents started to worry. She's still not home. The next morning, two students are passing by the engineering building and they see someone who seemed to be passed out at the bottom of the stairs, but they weren't asleep. 
Deborah was found severely beaten, strangled. She still had on all her clothes, her watch. The motive didn't seem to be robbery or sexual assault. The only thing missing on her body were her white sneakers. She was beat to death with bricks. They were left at the scene near her body. From the computer room, Deborah was dragged through the maze of hallways and outside to the building to the stairwell. The killer left a trail of blood with her body. So obviously, the very first suspect was David Dixon, the guard. He was even shaky about where he was at the exact time during his shift, but he had an alibi. He said that he was on the phone with his girlfriend the whole time. He completely forgot to escort Deborah to her car because he was slacking on the job. So no, he wasn't the last one to see her alive. He actually had never even walked past the computer room. But then he failed the polygraph. But that wasn't admissible in court. And just like that, the detectives were like, well, shit, the case is going to go cold for seven years. Years later, the Vidoc Society were revisiting Deborah's case, and in the murder room, they were all presented with Deborah's case on the projector, and Richard immediately had a theory. He said, if I might offer my opinion, the key to this case is the absence of the victim's shoes and her socks. The crucial question is, what is the value of a killing? What do they get out of this? Since he didn't sexually assault her, what value was it? He tells us by the absence of the shoes and the socks that he doesn't want money. She's still wearing her wristwatch. He doesn't want to sexually assault her. He wants the shoes. I believe he's a foot fetishist. He's obsessed with women's shoes. He collects them. He probably masturbates over them. And in all likelihood, he probably can't even sustain an erection around a real woman. This is Richard's belief, not on people who have foot fetish, but this guy, the killer. So the killer didn't assault Deborah because he didn't want her. He said, and I quote, he doesn't want the fuck. He wants the shoes. He'll sniff him up at home. Basically, he needs to neutralize her so he can harvest from her what he wants. And he does it and he leaves. The murder scene also indicates he's a bit of a power assertive guy. He likes to dominate and control. A guy who lifts weights, exhibits macho power and strength with guns. He's probably one of those gun-obsessed people. Hobbies, he probably likes things like karate. Again, another very macho, I'm a man sport. One of the officers who was there presenting the case said, Richard, your profile fits our guy to the T. Our one suspect for the past seven years, David Dixon, the security guard. So after seven long years, he was working as a U.S. Army sergeant and recruiter, and newspapers started talking about breakthroughs on Deborah's case, which, by the way, they never even mentioned the Vidoc Society. They were like, oh, the police are now working with potential clues. And so David Dixon, he actually was kind of marshaled for the theft of a woman's like break-ins on the army in South Korea. So he was based in South Korea at one point, And while he was on duty, he literally broke into women's rooms and stole their white sneakers. <laughs> so the police are like, okay, well, we should probably search your storage bins at the Philly Navy base. And they found hundreds of women's white sneakers, all used, all stolen, presumably. He had tapes, sex scenes of women in white sneakers, which by the way, Richard was even protecting this. He said that um, there would be pictures and videos of women fondling other women's feet, which is exactly what they found. There was a vlog of him on vacation in Florida with his girlfriend. And at the time, the whole time, he's filming his partner's feet. Like not the, not the Disney World, his partner's feet. He would go to fast food restaurants and literally film random women wearing white sneakers. He had a picture of a naked store mannequin wearing a pair of white kegs like he just loved white sneakers an ex-girlfriend came out and said you know david is obsessed and drew satisfaction from women's feet and sneakers especially when i came home from work with sweaty sweaty sneakers my husband would remove my shoes rub them kiss them and fondle them my feet and toes just my sweaty feet and toes you know then i would watch him masturbate while he would watch videos of women exercising in white sneakers he just had a thing for white sneakers then they found out that david's alibi was fake 
So finally, in 2005, with the help of Richard, which, by the way, he predicted literally all of this, like all of the predicting, the photos that would be there, everything. They finally arrested him. And David was convicted of Deborah's murder. Later in prison, David told his cellmate everything else about the murder, that he approached Deborah and she rejected him. And this enraged him. And he started attacking her, grabbing her by the hair, hitting her. He started to strangle her until she fell unconscious, ripped off her shoes and sneakers, started rubbing her feet. When she woke back up, he choked her to death and rubbed her feet all over his face. And then he dragged her behind the stairwell, beat her more with a bloody brick, and he fled with his prized possessions. And just... Like Richard had predicted, he kept the shoes for about a year and he would keep them in separate plastic bags to preserve the smell for his fantasies later. Take them out and he would masturbate with them from time to time. This is how good Richard was at like predicting all of this. I mean, it was crazy. And now this is the last one. And it's really fascinating because it feels like you're watching a crime show and it's not real life and how they solve these cases. This case was considered the impossible case. The case was 20 years old, and the remains of the skeleton were found in an isolated patch of the woods outside of a farm. I mean, at first, everybody thought it belonged to an old farmer, but the corpse was much recent, maybe only 20 years old. The skull, though, was smashed. So, I mean, it was clear as a murder. The police asked Frank to do the job pro bono, and he took it. He had to reconstruct the face and the skull, even though it was smashed. And he's thinking, okay, that's fine. Mail me the skull, and I'll get to work putting it back together. But they said, okay, Frank... You promised to help. There's no take backs, but (laughs) I can't believe we didn't even mention this. There's no skull. Like there's no nose, no face, no eyes, no mouth, no cheekbones, just like the outside of the skull. So imagine the skull is like a donut and all the important parts that you need to reconstruct how somebody looks like the eyebrow bones and stuff. We don't have any of that. So he's like, how the hell do you want me to rebuild a face without the bones? So Frank reaches out to a physical anthropologist at Anthropology. I'm kidding. That was a really bad joke at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. and another expert at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they all told Frank, don't be dumb. Don't be an idiot. That's impossible. So now Frank has a fire under his butt. He consults William and Richard and they thought Frank was losing his mind. And they keep telling him, you're not God. Like, we know you want to help, but we're not God. Like, there's only so much we can do. It's still real life. But Frank knew how to get Richard involved. He said, oh, and Rich, get this. The FBI refused to help because they said there's not even enough information to do a criminal profile on the murderer. They said it was impossible, actually. So Richard's like, the FBI said it was impossible? (laughs) I guess then I better fucking do it, shouldn't I? So he reads the police report. Now, the left arm, the hand, and the left pelvic bones, the left foot, and the left leg were all missing. So he's like, okay, this is a lot. It was the ultimate challenge. And Richard understood how Frank felt. They needed to do it. The remains were almost impossible to ID, but it said that it would belong to a woman who was very petite, maybe in her 20s, 30s, probably of mixed race and about five foot five, 100 to 110 pounds. She suffered poor nutrition as a kid. That was clear. Maybe she was a sex worker. That makes sense. Maybe a victim of a serial killer or a wealthy farmer because that's kind of the area that they're working with. Now they're taking context clues from the environment. Her clothes were found near the scene and the manufacturing showed that her clothes were no older than 1988. So that's probably when she died, which coincided with an active serial killer in the area at the time, Arthur Shawcross. He raped and murdered a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl. And when he got out of prison, he started raping and killing more people. 
He would return to the grave sites oftentimes and masturbate over the corpses of his victims. He had already confessed to 11 victims, but maybe this was his 12th. She was dubbed the girl with the missing face. And frustrated, Frank tried to get inspired, right? He was actually working on another project. He was contacted by this museum to actually exhume the skulls of former slaves in America and create a bust of their face to really humanize them. So he was working on that. And while he's working on the skull, he noticed that one of the bones behind the eyes was the same width as the nasal bones, which is very similar to the very few bones he had for the girl with the missing face. So now he's thinking, okay, so she was definitely mixed race or black. That's what he's thinking. And he gets back to work and he's inspired. And he's like, Richard, I need a profile. I need a profile on the killer. And that will tell me what kind of victim he's going to choose. Richard says, okay, judging by the way that the corpse is buried, I think that she's probably a sex worker. Usually power hungry killers love to kill sex workers. They dump the bodies like they're disposing of trash, which is exactly how this body was found. The zipper of her clothes was damaged, which again results in someone being power hungry and the clothing of the victim is often forcibly torn off, typically with sex workers. I think the killer at the time is wild guess an ex-convict in his 20s probably very muscular again a very macho man very primitive arrogant i assume that he would drive a pickup truck if i'm just getting context clues from the environment he's probably obsessed with playboys and porn magazines and he's not afraid to show it he's almost proud of it this whole profile matched a farmer at the time that lived in that area named roland he had rented a cabin near the side of the grave and he was six foot four 230 pounds a high school athlete wrestler he had even served time for a murder before and it was the murder of a sex worker he was enraged when he found out that the sex worker was transgender and he stabbed her in the throat his lawyer even later said this sleazy homosexual insert transphobic slur duped this poor country boy <laughs> We're laughing because how do you even say that with your whole chest? But what's even crazier is the jurors were sympathetic to this poor country boy and they found him innocent of murder and guilty of manslaughter. He only served four years in prison before being paroled. At the same time, another detective was looking at Frank's bust and he was sure he knew the victim's mother. So a detective from the area was like, wait a minute, I'm looking at Frank's work and I feel like I know this whole family because it's like one of those small towns. So he shows her the bus and she burst into tears. She said, I think that's my daughter, Lauren Weaver. She was just 26 years old when she went missing. She was a sex worker. She never wanted to be, but she was forced into it when she was 14. The DNA confirmed the match. Now the police arrest Roland and he confessed. He said that Lorene was his ghost. He confessed to picking up Lorene, paid her $20 in the car with her, and he told her that he was going to break up with his girlfriend and he wanted more sex from her. But she nicely rejected and he started to force her. So she slapped him and he slapped her back and then punched her. And then he just kept squeezing her throat until she stopped breathing. He grabbed a hammer, hit her on the head till she stopped, and he engaged in necrophilia before burying her or tossing her into a remote field. Like Richard predicted, Roland was potentially a serial killer. He was suspected in multiple other murders, and he was given the maximum sentence for Lorene's murder, which was 24 years to life at the time, in state prison. And all thanks to Frank's bus, they were able to ID the victim. So sadly, in 2009, Frank was diagnosed with cancer. This was brought on by his exposure to abesthos, which is a very rare cancer. It's a thousand times rarer than lung cancer, and only about one in a million people worldwide develop it. It's very deadly. The cancer takes about 20 to 50 years to develop, and it spread all into Frank's torso. His doctor told him, the tumor is probably bigger than the baby's head. 
inside your torso. And there's no surgery we can do to remove it because it's surrounding your heart and your lungs like a spider web. The doctors gave him 8 to 18 months. Frank's wife was also diagnosed with lung cancer at the same time, and the doctors had them estimated to leave at the same exact time. And they tried to find the silver lining, and they felt it was romantic. Near the end of Frank's life, he spent most of his time painting, and in 2009, they celebrated their 39th wedding anniversary. And in 2011, Frank passed away. Richard Walter left Vidoc Society in 2016, and William Fleischer continues to serve the society as its commissioner. And they are still working hard to solve crime. This is like one of those, it just brings hope back into, I know, I know there are a lot of cases with stellar impeccable investigative work but just for the sheer amount of cases there are in the world it's just more often than not that it's not great and the fact that there are people out there it kind of gives you a little bit of hope now Mm -hmm. so i hope this kind of brightened up your day a little bit but i hope you guys enjoyed this week's mini-sode and i'll see you guys on wednesday for the main episode bye